Good day. Good evening to everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm just very honored to be moderating this, this conversation between two visionary monumental artists, Dinga McCannon and Tina Williams Brewer. And what we're going to do is they're going to take us through some of their images. They're going to share some images with us and talk about some of their work. And then we're going to be in conversation and we'll open it up to Q&A. And so I just ask people as we go along to uh, put your questions or comments in the chat section below and I'll be checking them and um, I will be um, asking questions and making the comments. So thank you very much. And again, my name is Kalola Luckett and I'm a curator and art historian based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, it is my esteemed privilege to be in conversation with artist Dingham McCannon and artist Tina Williams Brewer, who both of their work is part of 154 Contemporary African Arts Fair. And so what I'm going to do is just welcome our guests and then we'll um, start the presentation. So hello, Dinga, hello, Tina. Hi. Alrighty, so I'm gonna share my screen and we will get started here. Uh, okay. Here and let's see. There we go. Everybody can see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. we're there. Okay. Great. Okay, Dinga, you are up. Okay. Um, all right. I'll discuss this first piece, which is in the show. Uh, this is my second Althea Gibson work. Um, the first one lived at the ESPN zone on 42nd Street in New York. The second one um, was done in 2012. I chose Althea Gibson for a number of reasons. Number one, she was the first African-American to have her own ticker tape parade down Broadway. She was a Harlem resident, which I was until uh, eight years ago. And I just love her story. Um, this quilt is made out of all kinds of things. First thing is, um, instead of using fabric as a background, I've used over-dyed cotton batting because I find batting, it just has a nice, interesting surface. So I used it instead of a piece of fabric. The squares that are around her are made from brown paper, luchador, and copper. And then a lot of the people, uh, that's all fabric, but the tennis players, that's all paper. These dangly things are all, I augment or augment my storytelling uh, venue by putting direct comments on these dangly things. Uh, like, and I like to portray things about different people that are not commonly known. Like for example, with Althea Gibson, she was also a master golf person. And a lot of people don't know that. So that's this piece. And then there's also a close-up. Here's the close-up where you can see, um, I've got newspaper strippings as ticker tape because in those days they used newspaper for ticker tape. These brown figures, this is brown paper, which has been fortified with the use of golden gel medium. 
And this is really like a highlight of the entire quilt because this is her coming down Broadway. The tennis racket is probably thread embroidery and I've got paint and I have a little goodies here. Also, these tennis pieces here, I found them at Savathon, which is a fabric store in New York. They're really famous for all kinds of gaudy, unusual fabrics and a lot of this and that. These tennis rackets were found in their basket of this and that. So on to the next piece. This is one of my oldest quilts. It's called The Wedding Party. And um, this was done in 2000. Uh, the is entitled The Wedding Party Number Two. The history of our families is really the, the history of our nation is really the stories of families. Um, as a culture, family gatherings are like, like all cultures are very, very important. And I chose to portray this one because number one, the bride was not 18. She's more like 40 years heading into 50th. And then I started making up stories about the people who are surrounding her, like people who can't stand each other, but they've decided to be nice and smile just for this one event. Uh, the mother, the grandmother, the buddies. Um, also surrounding this fabric is another piece uh, this blue with the people from Africa. I found this fabric in the 80s, also in Savathon. You never know what you'll find in there. And I found it in about four different colors. Sometimes when I go look for fabric and find something, I buy it. But then sometimes the wiser part of me will say, buy it all. And that's what I did. So I still have got uh, pieces of this fabric left to go on to another quilting adventure. So this one, um, I basically use fabrics and beads. I didn't use paper or luchador or any of the other new age things that I'm fond of using because at 2000, they really hadn't come to the forefront. So that's that story. The next one, this is a painting. And I put this painting in the group to show sort of um, how my work kind of transitioned because I started out initially as a painter, but in this piece, which is called the West Indian Day Parade, which was done from a photograph that I actually took at the West Indian Day Parade, probably in 74 or 75. Uh, what happened was with my paintings, of, uh, I, I claimed that I went to Janua Moshe's house, who is a fiber artist out of Washington, and her fabric scraps used lots of African fabric and other stuff. I claim that they literally jumped off the floor and went into my painting, but that's not what happened. Probably I just liked that they added just another dimension to a flat surface. So I started cutting out painting, I'm cutting out interesting fabrics and adding them to my paintings. And this was one of the first ones. So you see African fabric up here. It's the, um, with one of the dancers. This is another piece of polyester. So that's sort of how my journey began to all fiber, or mostly fiber. Next. Okay, this is one of my out of the box pieces because 
for me as an artist, I like doing things that are different and unusual. And I try to take the medium into other realms, sometimes merging it with different realms. The central piece here was done from a model, um, a body, one of those plastic display bodies. Uh, over top of it is paper. And I do have the capacity to make paper, but I found paper in the bottle one year. So I said, I'm gonna use up all this paper in the bottle. And I made the form. The title of this piece is called I embrace the younger woman I used to be, but I love the old lady, wink, wink, that I have become. Because first of all, you're not supposed to call us old ladies. And that's why I said wink, wink. And it's a piece about aging. Um, here, the woman has a waistline, which I kind of embraced because I definitely lost it. My own personal waistline, that is. Um, surrounding that body is excerpts from a book that I made that was called, Oh My God, I'm 65. And then the danglies, once again, are things that happen to me, basically, as an older person. Like, for example, one of them says, welcome to pill world. Because somehow when you hit 65 and you go to the doctor, next thing you know, you, you have a huge club of pill takers and they just keep giving them to you. And... Yeah, and also the color of my hair. Um, sometimes women who are older, they like to color their hair differently. I think you should do what you, your hair what you want, but people off, sometimes they'll get on you because your hair is gray. But my philosophy is you're not fooling anybody. You're old, your hair is gray. If they don't like the gray, it's too bad. But then if you want to paint your, I mean, if you want to color your hair red or blonde, that's fine too. Um, this is basically made out of cottons and on her, the top here, I've used alphabet bees, which are usually uh, an item from the crafters realm. But I like the alphabet bees because they tell stories very directly. They tell you exactly what's on my mind. And it's just um, beating along with the machine embroidery and sewing by machine, the beading gives, is a very meditative process and it just is just calming. It's just a nice feeling. So I like to do lots of hand beading when I can. So next piece. Ah, oh, there's Tina. I'm not Tina. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, Dina. This is you, sorry about that. And this is the last piece. <laughs> Uh, this is me working yesterday or the day before down in my studio on my latest fascination, which is uh, black women who are blues artists from the 20s and 30s. Um, I started out with Ma Rainey. I did several pieces on her. Then I went to Bessie Smith. And then I think I just decided to put them all together. While I was doing that, I started doing some research and I found out that there were a whole lot of African-American women who were blues singers at the time. And I admired them because number one, I love the costumes. They had glitter, they had Swarovski crystals, they had shine and feathers, things that I'm very, very, very fond of. And they, their stories, uh, I continually to find them extremely interesting because these women, they had money. A lot of them took control of their own careers. And to me, these were like the first black women 
who dared to be artists. And the nice thing about them is that they were surviving very well. They were not starving. They had their own bus. Some of them had their own labels. Um, other things, I, as I began to research, I found out that some of these ladies, they did just fabulous things. One of the women is Edith Wilson, who was the first Aunt Jemima. So also uh, in this piece, uh, I've used cotton, velvet, the sequin dress that I'm working on, Bessie Smith here, I found in the thrift shop. I just cut up the dress because I like the, the fabric. Um, I'm very fond of Swarovski crystal because there's no other bead in my mind that gives the illusion of light. It's just, it sparkles, it's wonderful. It's very celebratory. Um, also this piece, I've done a lot of uh, freehand embroidery with the faces. Um, this ultimately is going to become a sculpture. It's going to be round. It's going to be about five, at least five, five and a half feet tall. And it's going to have these women and then there'll be another column with uh, the rest of the women I discover. And then on the bottom is going to be uh, feathers and tendrils which is which are going to which i'm going to embroider the names of some of the songs that these ladies wrote because not only were they great singers they wrote their own music a lot of them and i celebrate that i think uh, i'm constantly inspired by these ladies because of all the things they did back in 1920 to me that means my job as an artist going into the 21st century should be a lot easier. Whether it is or not, that's a whole nother discussion, but it should be because these ladies started way back then. And that's the end of that. I shade of that, Dinga. Dinga, I love how you render the night sky with the stars and these those blue sweeping circular motions. That's just very exquisite. Yeah, thank you. And it's because, you know, as blues singers, uh, a lot of times they spent their, they sang and performed at night. Mm -hmm. So that's why that sky is so much a part of the composition, because a lot of stuff went on at night. Very, very vibrant. Thank you. All right, Tina. There we are. So um, first of all, I'll introduce myself. I, I am Tina Williams-Brewer and I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and I am a teaching artist. And so all of my work is, um, is used to teach, uh, be it young, old, or anyone in between. Um, this piece was reminiscent, first of all, of my hometown of Huntington, West Virginia, which I uh, haven't really contemplated on very much over the years, but uh, I was driven in 2017 to kind of do a look back. And it was based on a challenge. I belong to a group called Women of Visions. And hey, Women of Visions is 40 years old this year and celebrating an anniversary. But uh, we usually have themes and then we have artists that come in to visit. So the artist uh, that came in, and this is the third, uh, second or third time that she came was Sonia Clark. And uh, Sonia is very inspirational in terms of the way that she thinks, um, you know, and just the way that she delivers her information. So if you don't know much about Sonia Clark, which I can't imagine you don't, please look her up because uh, she can inspire you. 
So it was um, about hair. So that theme was about hair. So I was thinking, when I started thinking back about hair, I had to think back to my childhood and how did we really look, like uh, look at it? How did we develop concepts and ideas of beauty around it? And um, because my family is very diverse in the way that they look, um, I didn't really ever have uh, issues with, you know, straight hair, nappy hair, hair in between. It was just that we were of all types. So I, I hate to say this, I didn't grow up with a lot of bias about how African-Americans viewed themselves. And I think that, that became an, more of an issue as I got older and I heard people expressing how about color, coloration, um, what, what do they call it? They color, call it, um, I don't know, I'm not gonna say it. Uh, but you know, shades of who we are. And one of the things that I always felt that I was really black until somebody said, some, said to me otherwise. And I think that you, you don't grow up with bias, you are treated to or, or involved with it. So this piece right here, talks about, it has a lot of uh, images of time in it. And, um, you know, so isn't it time that we really get to the root of it? Isn't it time that we accept that we are a diaspora, that we look many different ways and that we're very trying to be inclusive and really looking beyond the surface into the depths and the soul of the people that we engage with. And so um, this piece right here, it starts out with the ancestors that are at the bottom who are coming up out of the water and um, they are raising their hands. And um, that is a, a theme that I've used over and over throughout the years. I've been, I'll say that I've been quilting for about 40 years and I've been with Dinga in several shows already, um, but it was not a, uh, the main part of my life, it was the part that gave me joy. So I had, when I started, I had to go to the library, wasn't able to go to the Google as we are now able to, uh, to research and get the information. There wasn't enough books that were there available to us. I'm sure in New York, there were, there was much more sourcing for reading material because of the, you know, the larger volume of people that were immigrants people that came from the islands and from other countries. So in Pittsburgh, there wasn't just, but we had a wonderful, wonderful library here in the east end of Pittsburgh called the Homewood Library that had a huge African-American and African collection. And I would go there when my kids were in school and sit and read all the time. That Then I started collecting the books. And one of the books that I collected that I thought was like my favorite was this book right here. This is Africanisms in America. And it's been my footprint for such a long time because it really pulled into, um, into like a, a, a crystallized a lot of information. Some of the things that we do and just take for granted, like raising our hands, like why are we raising our hands and why are the hands red? because we raise our hands to the blood of the ancestors and that most of the work is uh, celebratory of the ancestors. And so 
uh, and I won't go, if you're really interested in a lot of the details, you go to the website and read. There's a couple of books that are on there and they're PDFs and you can go through it. But, you know, I've been very obsessed with the Middle Passage and about connecting imagery that is contemporary with imagery that is ancient. And so I've been, so the work is a thread. It's a thread from when I began to, oh, there we go, changing. Okay, so this one right here is um, called Darlings of Rhythm. And uh, it is a collage and all of my work pretty much is collage. It has some photographs uh, in it of uh, Timmy Harris, who is a famous photographer. He's Pittsburgh, he lived in this community. I knew him, he was wonderful and such a humble person. Uh, but this one has uh, Darlings of Rhythm in it. This is one of the images that I thought was especially wonderful because we always tend to think about the men and the um, jazz. And then I took the photograph of the young people uh, over to the right of the image that are contemporary. So we have, you know, contemporary artisans, female artisans, but then you see the bird that is flying on the right-hand side. And then you have this wonderful cloth that I sourced when I went to Ghana in 98. And um, I've like held on to it like because it's so precious to me. Uh, but at the top is only God. And so that is the symbol that I use a lot. Uh, and I use Andinkra symbols in many of my pieces. Um, but the only God is probably my mantra because it's only through that work that really things come to fruition. And I have a very strong belief in that. So, and then there's drums in the background. So there's a, so let me explain how it's made. I always work with a grid. So the background is the grid, which is um, connected to the kente cloth. And so, you know, strip, the strips are like six inches. You put them together, you make a whole cloth. So I, I use scraps. I am a scrap quilter. So um, the quilt group that I, work, that I worked with, they always gave me their scraps. So I have a whole, huge collection as well as really wonderful fabrics that people travel and bring back to me. So it has a ticking in the background, which is kind of like, you know, you have those lines that are set up so that you can put the notes in. So that is kind of like the notes are the images of the people that are there. And so you have the two drums. And then at the very top is my very favorite person who came here to Pittsburgh uh, often, again, Joyce Scott. And um, I was catering an event and she was there when she was performing and I took pictures of her in her animation. And through those little Joyce Scott images at the top, because she is absolutely personified the uh, artist, uh, a performing artist as well as the biggest heart ever and um, so, I mean, I used her image to create that. Then uh, on the left hand side, on um, yeah, the left hand side, you see these, these kind of stick-like figures, which talks about our, how deep our root is with the music and that the imagery and the women, the women usually are kind of removed from the ceremonial music and dancing but these women are upfront and really sassy. And so um, at the very bottom, just very quickly, is a uh, pattern that belonged to a dear, dear friend of mine who gave me like that oomph I needed to be. 
and her name was Crystal Turner and she was from uh, Alabama and she was a very strong woman before her time. And um, she didn't complete her, her uh, image there uh, before she transitioned, but I use it off so that I can say her name. So this is, she's one of the darlings of rhythm. So there are just one more technical thing about the work is that the grid is there, the pieces are laid down, they're manipulated and moved around. And then the direction, and there is an overlay of sequence speeds and light that kind of help you to maneuver through most of the work. So, um, and I don't think it, you really can kind of see it on this piece, but uh, you, if you see them in person, you can see there's, there's a lot of handwork. I do do a little machine work, but my, my, my thrust is more in doing handwork because it's more meditative. There you go. And this one, this one is called Tributaries of Genius. Again, now you see Joyce and she's really big now. She's tall and she's stretching and um, she is now Ma Rainey. And this uh, piece is like a hello to Pittsburgh. We have mountains, we have the Hill District. We had all this music. My husband who transitioned three years ago was my muse to tell me about Pittsburgh because I'm from Huntington, West Virginia. So how rich the history was that, that Anne is here and the musicians that used to come through from New York to Pittsburgh and then on to Chicago. And if you made it in Pittsburgh, you can make it anywhere because it's a hard heart audience. And so um, there's an image of uh, Billy Strayhorn on the piano who was in my neighborhood too. So I'm the Forrest Gump of like knowing people that, you know, it didn't matter that I knew them, but I was there. And, and Stanley Turrentine as well, who was magnificent artist. And then at the very bottom, you see that, that image again, that is my friend Crystal Turner's rain, but they're drops because it's all about the water. And in the water drops are images that I took uh, of people who came and visited in my um, jazz club. And we won't get into all of that, but so there is Dr. Lilly, who it was phenomenal playwright and, and um, Rob Penny, and they were very good friends with August Wilson. And then youth, the youth, um, uh, youth musicians from Kappa, uh, which was a local school that started in Homewood and ended up being downtown. But we fostered that love and nurtured that, that group of talented. And then we had our local drummers. So, um, and in that piece uh, is an overlay of organza that is iridescent and it's fractured and there are little gems that are going through the waterways into the, into the well, it would be the three rivers because Pittsburgh has three rivers and um, it's a big deal. So we always bring that in, but also there is a Sankofa bird in there. And, um, and then at the very top, uh, you see the yin and the yang. And I kind of use that image a lot uh, in my work as well, because nothing's black, nothing's white, and we have to balance the ways that we exist in this world. So that is, and then uh, I'll call it Ma Rainey. She was dropping the, the droplets from her hand it, in, into the waterway. So um, it just kind of all flows together. But 
it really is um, a, a piece that, that really shines when you see it in person because of the transparency. Some of the work doesn't uh, photograph well because you can't find a hard edge. So that, and this one, and this one is called Standing in Tall Grass. And um, in the seat, it's 2016. And um, I think that when I was thinking about this particular piece, I was thinking about, you know, big decisions and how we, we get in positions and we have to try to figure out how to maneuver the situation. And I think we've all kind of gone through that in this pandemic time too. Um, again, you see the Sankofa bird, which is the bird that looks back on itself understanding that we have to really understand our past in order to move forward in the future. The materials are, um, they're sourced from burlap and cotton and then antique, the or antique organza. So anytime you see a any type of a figure that is white and transparent in my work, it usually is referencing an ancestor. And this particular ancestor my son told me about is uh, Ishu, who is at the crossroads and you have to, when you get to the crossroads, you really have to make a decision um, about where you're gonna go and what you're gonna do, but how do we show our wisdom? And I think I looked for the paper, I couldn't find the paper, so I'm gonna give you the, the quick version of it, but it was in the kingdom and I can't tell you the kingdom, but in the kingdom, the king asked for everybody to bring their best. And so everybody paraded down the street with all of this garb and all of this grandeur. And then issue came and all he had was a feather in his head. And, it, he, and he did a nod to the king. And actually that was the wisdom that he was looking for because we don't have to bring all of this heavy garb to show our wisdom. There's something to be said for being able to be quiet and, uh-oh, there we go again. Sorry, okay. Tina, sorry. Okay, let's move on. Okay. Um, the, these, this piece is a close-up of, um, some uh, prints, you know, silkscreen prints that I started in 2011 that really started to explore um, our connection with African diaspora and trying to understand, you know, the nomadic process that happened with migration. And so I was trying to think of the, the notion of like, how, how did we, you know, well, first of all, I, I ended up with some work in the uh, Sudan that went into one of the embassies. And so when I looked at it, I, I noticed that it was, you know, at the crossbar of the horizontal and the vertical uh, piece that you see there, which is a, a rendition of the Nile River. And I just thought that that was really interesting that the Nile River flowed from south to north and went into the Mediterranean. And I thought to myself, so, you know, just connecting dots how does that really work? And what does that look like? So um, I used just clip art. I wasn't, you know, rendered. I'm not a printmaker, by the way. I had a wonderful uh, uh, printmaker, Leslie Gollum, who worked with me at, at uh, uh, AIR, which is a printing place over on the north side of Pittsburgh, that they printed all of the work for me. But I used those iconic figures again and, and sketched them out and created the horizontal figures of floating figures that are going through there, but just trying to denote the migration patterns. And then I used these pieces to um, work with a group of children for four years in the culturally responsive art education 
to talk about what, how do we, how do we look, and what, and it, colorism. That was the word that I was looking for. How does colorism work in Africa? Because we just are not educated. I was not. I, I don't want to say we, because a lot of other people probably were, but I was not educated on on the on the continent, and I just felt that trying to get into that information early on would be uh, very beneficial to young people to understand that we come in many, many ranges uh, physically and, and the culture is different in every country and even in every village so that we can't paint it with a swath. And then the other thing is how influential the African continent was on Europe because we all studied Europe and then when we saw Europe, we saw it at the top and we never saw what was on the other side of the Mediterranean, which is, you know, you're cutting off Africa there. And so it's like, let's, let's just kind of back it up a little bit and let's think about why we learned about the Mediterranean without really engaging with Africa question. So this is one of the prints uh, that was done. It's on paper. And um, I used uh, symbols because I'm like a symbol person. And I did get, I have like many, many books again on symbols that I sourced to be able to do the rotation around the outside. So the symbols are not only from Africa, but also from Europe because I, in 2011, I went to France and I saw a lot of us there. And it was just, it was really wonderful. And then the pattern that um, rotates on the inside of the medallion is uh, another piece of clip art that I, that I sourced that shows the reach of the African slave trade. And that to my knowledge, I thought, you know, America was the culprit. And that when you look at this image and please go to the, you know, my website and you can see it better because I don't know that I have the words to really explain it well. But, it, you know, we only had two, two arrows that were pointing to the United States. All of that went into the Caribbean and into Europe and into, into Asia. So, I mean, our diaspora is so worth it, the time to be able to get in and dig in deeper, not just so that um, just so that we know our identity a little bit better. I think a lot of the fuss about the coloration and all of that can kind of stop when we realize like the root of, of our existence. And uh, there you go. Oh, and I did a group of quilts, um, 10 quilts for the Pittsburgh Courier um, in 2009 to, and each one of the quilts had a, you know, photographs of Teeny Harris's photographs and some of mine, uh, but they were all taken from the Courier archives. My husband it was a historian and uh, he was working with that organization to help them to develop the, um, the archives. So I had access to those images and I just had a, a ball with them because um, I could tell the story. And I think this one is um, the, the 90, 80s, 80s. Uh, no, 70s during the riots. And um, so go to the website. You can see all of the quotes. They're all there. There you go. And this one, uh, my goodness, this one is a silkscreen on fabric. And uh, again, 
uh, Forrest Gump here. John Weidman was a friend of my husband's and um, I went to hear him at Carnegie Mellon some years back. And, and I, I think it just struck a chord for me upon, it was one of his shorts, it was called um, Cry In. And I was going through a lot of stuff with my family at the time. And so, you know, I asked him whether or not he would send it to me and he did. And so this is the result of the engagement of that poetry. I love to work with other people's poetry and, you know, have them feed into me some new ideas. But um, this background medallion is on, uh, is the, on wood, like wood-like fabric. And then the overlay is on organza transparency and it's in green. So it's the same images. And then people are asking me about what is, what's going on with the squiggly figures. Well, that is a symbol um, that, that means knowledge. And I've kind of adopted it and I just love the way it flows. And I like the way aesthetics, how it pulls things together. And so I use it in a lot of my work now, but I am finding now there's a, I'm having some new aha moments about that symbol because I'm, I'm doing some work, some family work for my history. And I realized that um, uh, my grandmother, my grandmother, Christine, who was the artist in our family. Um, she was from Portsmouth, West Virginia, which is very close to the Serpentine Mounds. And um, I'm gonna, I'm really exploring that now. Um, I have just come across a book by uh, our Arthur here in Pittsburgh. Her name is Victoria and it. I don't have the book with me, I wish I did. Um, it, but it's Seeds and Seers. And it's about, it's about the Serpentine Mounds and how they connect to Pittsburgh, to the three rivers. And since I've been here for 50 years, I've been trying to figure out what is the connection of the indigenous people here that I could always just feel. And it was always about the water. And uh, aha, I just, now I have it, but I don't have time to, I'm having time to sit down and figure it all out. But it's, um, again, we're adult learners, we're always learning, trying to spark um, for our children, trying to give them the awareness that there's so much out there that can lift them up. So it's about lifting yourself through. Goodbye. I know, I mean, while we're transitioning, Tina, I just wanted to transition. Goodbye. You were talking um, about that, that, that final piece that you shared with us. And so thank you so much. Uh, I, I wanted to just start by um, asking you both, uh, um, when did you know you wanted to be an artist? Go for it, Dinga. I'm dry. Yeah, um, <laughs> probably around 10 or maybe it was 11, <laughs> but I'm an only child. I spent a great deal of time by myself and I began to draw and paint and I fell in love. And um, I decided, and I have no idea where I got this idea from because nobody else I knew would do in that. I decided I was gonna be an artist. And from that point on, I just kept going despite um, being dissuaded by my family because they said uh, the only thing they knew about artists is that artists starve, which wasn't far from the truth. However, there was so much more to being an artist that they had no clue. and. I just kept going and here it is 50 something years, well actually it's about 60 something years later, I'm still at it. 
still excited. I still get up in the morning and the first thing I want to do is run down to the studio. So it's sort of like a love affair that you never get over. So yeah. Tina, what's your story? Well, I mean, here's another one. Okay, let's go for another story. Okay, so I think that I was always very different and I, you know, kind of sit in the family between two academics and I just wasn't there. So they were busy reading and I was observing and putting things in action. So I was that kid on the block that was organizing all the kids to do shows. So I think I was a performing artist before in the very beginning. That's what I, I wanted to be a ballerina. I wanted to be able to play the piano. So I wanted all those things, but they weren't accessible to me. So I kind of like, I think I'm latent with those things. So when you look at my work now, I think that's what I infuse into them. I choreograph the imagery so that it is um, active. So it's moving and it's dancing and reminiscent of music. So yes, I was a performing artist in the backyard with all the kids in the neighborhood in Huntington, West Virginia. But I mean, there's so much movement in your work, Tina. So I can see how that has very much, you pulled that into and integrated that into your work, your, your quilts, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so Gina uh, and Tina, you both talked a little bit about your process. And um, I know Tina, you said you, you, know, you put together your work, you start with a grid. Um, Dinga, can you say a little bit more about how you, know, you conceive of your work and what goes into kind of like the beginnings of putting together um, a quilt? Um, well, two things. First, um, in general, I work intuitively. The only time when I don't work intuitively is when it's a commission, then I have to present sketches to show the person who's buying the art, the general direction of which I'm going. If it's not a commission, it's something that I'm working on I basically start with an idea, like the blues ladies. Uh, I started with Ma Rainey, then I went to Bessie Smith. And then um, as I began to read about these women's lives, I found all these other women. So I just started adding them. Um, I will use whatever technique and material that I think will tell the story. In the blues, I'm using a lot of chiffons, a lot of feathers, a lot of sparkly things, because that's reminiscent of the people I'm portraying. And basically I start with uh, just a piece of cloth and I start, I add one thing onto it and I say, okay, and I think about it. Then I just keep adding and adding and taking away and adding. I never know what the piece is gonna look like when it's finished. Uh, according to me, I really don't want to know what it looks like when it's finished because that kills all the fun for me. The fun and the challenge and the enjoyment is how am I going to make something out of this huge mess of stuff I have? And that's basically my process. And Tina, how about you? Uh, very similar. I mean, um, I think that Dinga and I both kind of are cut from the same cloth. We're about the same age. And um, you know, and it's about sourcing materials. I use a lot of refurbished materials. Um, uh, and I, the way I start is I actually start by cleaning my studio before I start a new work. And that gives me something to do with my hands as I'm thinking about um, the concepts that I want to put in. So it's all about 
I'm a hunter and gatherer of information. And so um, most of my work at some point just stops, but it's accessible to new information all the time. So, um, you know, I'm just collecting and listening to people and looking for connections and how, how we can start conversations. I mean, it's about the conversation about culture and art that, you know, that's my impetus for most of my work. Uh, you both talk about, um, well, you didn't specifically, Dinga, but I know this about you. And Tina, you spoke a little bit about this, about being in women collectives, women of visions, uh, Dinga, where we at. Um, I would love to hear you talk about, um, you know, being in, you know, an all women's collective and how that has nourished you. And also just the kind of, um, kind of or origin stories about that, because I know womanhood, personhood, um, motherhood all plays a role in that. But can you both speak a little bit about these two very important collectives that you both were a part of? Okay. Um, would you like to talk? Yeah. And I saw, um, you know, um, we wanted revolution at the Brooklyn Museum. And, and so I just found like you being part of that collective and, and the women included was just, uh, you know, a pretty staggering group of women and talented people, so. Yeah, um, where we at started, as you remember, this was the 70s. Black mm -hmm. women really weren't supposed to be artists. <laughs> but those of us who dared, I think, where we had kind of started because I got a little lonely. I was surrounded by men artists. But once I had a child, uh, at that time, the women were the caregivers of children. Nowadays, you have a more equal system going. But back then, if you were a woman, that was your job. Um, and I found it be a little isolating, a little strange. And how am I going to raise this child and still have time to do artwork? And the questions just kept coming. So then I called Faith Ringo. She called Kay Brown. And then all three of us started calling around to other women who we knew who were artists. And we decided to have a meeting at my house. And I lived on uh, the Lower East Side, a fifth floor walk up with water coming down the uh, hallway. So the women who came up to, up to my house that day, they were really interested in um, other women artists. Long story short, we formed an organization. We began to exhibit um, together. And we did other kinds of things. We outreached in the community. We helped each other in terms of babysitting, like the kids would all come to my house one day, then they go to somebody else's house. Sometimes it even got to be a thing of financial issues because uh, as a Where We At member, we would help out another member who was behind in her rent or who had some other problem. And it really and truly was a sisterhood. Um, we lasted for 25 years and sometimes things do end and that's what happened, so. Thank you. Tina. So, you know, I was not one of the original members of the organization because I probably wasn't really practicing. I was um, hit and miss. I was doing my photography. I was raising my kids. Um, I did some ceramics. 
Um, when I did the harvest quilt, I, I took it to a Harambe, which is, was an organization that had a festival each year in um, Homewood. And a woman there, Juanita Miller, who was like grandma, she, and she says, you've got to show, you've got to show. And I said, I don't want to belong to a group because I'm not a group person. She says, no, just show the work, just show the work. So I did show the work um, and, you know, I kind of was on the peripheral, you know, with the organization and I didn't really take up membership until much later, probably in, that was in the eighties, probably in the nineties, uh, I became more active. And are we gone? Okay, so, so um, the organization, you know, oh, there you go, there you go, good. Um, the organization as I did some digging in because I, first of all, I, I learned to love the women in the group because they nurtured so well. And um, um, Juanini Miller and um, see Shona Sharif, um, Gay Gay, we called her, uh, and um, Adrian Powers. They all were like the step up people to get involved, to, to push this group forward. And so I guess they had about 15 women. And I think that, that of the original group, there's probably about five or six women that are still in the group that were there in the very beginning. But I was a Johnny come lately with the group. I supported the group as much as I could, but I was, I was engaged in like a lot of responsibilities with my family, my, my husband and my community work that wasn't engaged in the group to keep up. I showed with them and now I show with them much more, but um, the organization is a nurturing organization and uh, America Jackson is like my mentor to tell me what was going on back in the day when I wasn't part of the organization. So you do have to have um, support, but my support also came from another group that I was involved with, which was the Fiber Arts Guild which really had some dynamo women who like were already established in their careers and were so willing to share. Fran Gialamas, I mean, just like, wow. You know, um, Jean Brenholtz, like, wow. I mean, Adrian Heinrich, these were all women that took the time to share the information and to show you how to document, how to keep your stuff straight and to like maneuver. And I'm not a technical person, so I always needed help, you know, with all of the resume stuff and all of that. So they jumped in. So it was two organizations, the Women Divisions and the Fiber Arts Guild of Pittsburgh that really um, supported me all the way through this journey. So I have a great amount of gratitude to both groups. Wow, this is beautiful. And Dinga, so you're, you currently, you're based in Philadelphia, right? Yes. And Tina's based in Pittsburgh. So you all are both in Pennsylvania, but in opposite ends of, of the state. Um, it's like, what, five hours apart or five hours apart. Just about. Right. right. Um, so uh, it's so just fruitful just to hear you all talk about your work, but then also, you know, the individuality that you possess, possess but also so much you have in common as well. Uh, and it's just the storytelling. This is like the archival work, the living archive that you all 
are. You're, you all are vessels of information. And I was curious to hear from you, like how important is archive, archive building um, for you? I mean, as far as collecting books, pictures, objects, um, how important is archives to you? And the reason why I'm asking that is because of these two, actually three different collectives that you're talking about, um, how that is really, you know, legacy building for younger artists to be able to look back at this work um, um, and really draw inspiration on to move forward with their own work. So could you just talk a little bit about how, you know, archives in general are, are important for you? Um, also, you know, along with where we at, I also belong to another group much earlier called the Way You See Artists Collective. Oh, uh, yes. We're still, um, we're still together and we're still working. And, and on the, the first the woman, archive, right? Yeah, I was, uh, no, I wasn't the first woman. Oh, you weren't? Okay. Um, the first show that we had, there were a lot of women, most of who okay. I don't remember. As the group split and became um, Way You See Artists, I was the only woman for a while. Then I sort of left, although I continued my membership because uh, I had a store and children and other stuff going on. However, at this point in time, um, you don't realize how important archives are until you get old, or at least with me. And um, now I am in charge of getting the way you see archives together and making sure that they don't stop existing when we stop existing because as we get older people die out um, our archives are tentatively going to go to the Schomburg and most of us wanted that because first of all I'm a Harlem resident so I lived in Harlem for 65 years I love Harlem etc and we wanted those archives to go someplace where the public will have access to them because all of our struggles all of the things that we've done they will die with us unless we pass them on or we put them in some form so the next generation, and not just the next generation, five, 10 generations after I'm gone will have access to our papers. And mainly because they can see how we grew from basically nothing until uh, art force to be reckoned with, all the different shows, all the different activities. This should be inspiration for the next generations of artists to take with say, okay, they did that, we can do that and we can go even further. So it's really, really important. Okay, Tina. I think I grew up being an archivist because, um, you know, I just, I think memory is so important. And I think that I had so many childhood memories um, and, I think legacy is important because, you know, my father, my father grew up, I grew up in a funeral home. So, you know, I had like all of this energy of people swirling around me all the time. And I, I actually think that I felt it, but it's just people want to be remembered. And so through, as an adult, through my college years, and I went to Columbus College of Art and Design, through my college years, I took photographs. I actually did take photographs and that was when I had to save money to be able to buy a roll of film and to have it have it um, paid to have it developed 
So it has always, always been the most important thing. It's just that I'm a mess with it because I'm not organized to keep it all together. Uh, I'm really a mess with it now because we had the trolley station oral history center. And now I have a lot of my husband's papers and things, and I still haven't kind of gotten everything together. So I have a lifetime of organization yet to come. Lots of lots of quilts and lots of lots of stories to tell. Um, but I think my children, both my son, Emery and my daughter, Christy, they all understand the importance of all of the artifacts and papers and information that we have collected that is theirs because they're all Pittsburghers. And then my family information is also available to them as well. So it's, I mean, I think that, I think that what I try to do with my work, which is to create these memory boards, which is called, you know, the Luba people do a La Casa. A La Casa is, you know, something that you touch that tells you to tell the story. And every piece that I do is a La Casa and it is about keeping memory and keeping um, it intact, you know, for the next generation. And carrying it a little bit further, that is what I teach when I go into the schools and I've been teaching it for 20 years. So it's not just about me and my family, it's about the children and the young people that I've come in contact with, that they have a sense of identity based on their own personal history. So, you know, I, I teach it through like the African lens, which is, I guess, interesting. And it's, it's funny because a lot of the non-African children gravitate to the imagery of the African. So, you know, it's, I think it's a wonderful story and archive is important. It is my life. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think we have time for uh, one or two more questions, but uh, before I ask a question, I wanted to see if you all wanted to ask each other a question or a comment about your work or anything in general. Um, it's, you know, just wanted to offer that up. I have plenty of questions for you, but I wanted to offer that up. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I didn't know that Dingle was in, in Pennsylvania. That's what, it, that's, I'm really surprised to hear that because I, always knew her to be an, a New York audience, uh, New York artist, and I mean. And so, um, Dinga, how long have you been in, in Pennsylvania? Uh, I believe this is my eighth year. Okay. And I only moved here because at 65, I had a choice. I could stay in New York and I'd have to work forever, or I could move in Philadelphia and be a full-time artist. So it was a no-brainer. So I moved to Philadelphia. Um, living is a lot cheaper here. Uh, Pennsylvania is very kind to the senior citizens. We have free coffee here. And I've been able to flourish and to continue working. And that's why I'm here. But um, I always say I'm a Harlem woman. You can okay. take the woman out of Harlem, but you can't take Harlem out of the woman. And also another reason I moved here is because um, I was a freelance art teacher most of my life. And some of my jobs, I would go from Harlem to points as far out as the end of the train station in Queens and then get on a bus. So when I moved to Philadelphia, which is an hour and a half from New York, it's a no brainer. It's kind of easy to get there. I've been traveling all my life. So an hour and a half to get back to my roots of source, there's no problem. Excellent. Well, welcome aboard. I mean, yeah, and I will say that 
Um, we are the country cousins out here in the East, uh, in the West, and you are our, our metropolitan artist there in Philadelphia. Uh, and, you know, such wonderful murals and excellent artists come from Philadelphia that I mean, I'm sure you found a really great nurturing family there. Not really. My, I've basically been focused on staying in the studio and hanging out with my New York roots. I do have a few artist friends here, but it's very, very few. I'm still in Harlem. My body is just here. Okay. Hear you. Hear you. Absolutely. Place and, is important. And, and Dinga, did you have any um, a question or comment that you'd like to share um, with Tina? Uh, oh, I'd like to come visit a studio. Oh, well, <laughs> it is a, yes, please come. Please no, come. it could be a mess. That's the fun. Well, that's what I thought was wonderful about Harlem is that everybody lived in their studio. And I thought, well, I finally arrived because I, I, I have my studio in my home now. And uh, it's just about maneuvering the space because I've always had like lots of space, but maneuvering the space now. But um, yes, you should come. And, um, and I'm on the, on the grassroots level. Like I live in the place that I love, okay. which is around the people that I try to inspire. Dinga, have you been to Pittsburgh? Sure, I've been half of everywhere. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, Charlotte Carr, who is a Where We At member, lives there, and she's just opened the gallery. So uh, I'll be coming through Pittsburgh sooner rather than later. Well, you, the door is open. Absolutely, the door is open. Very much so. Um, well, I'm going to have, I'm going to ask one more question before we wrap up. Uh, I'm always curious, uh, I mean, I love books and I'm always curious to know what people are reading. Um, and uh, what, do you, what, do you, what have you all been reading lately that has inspired you? It could uh, be poetry, it could be, you know, memoir, history, whatever. Like what, what have you read these recently that has, you know, got you thinking about, um, you know, Various different things from what can inspire your work to relationships to I'm most curious what people are reading. Um, I use I'm a great reader, number one. I used to read a lot of novels and whatnot, um, but the whole fiber art thing has redirected my reading habits into magazines and books dealing with techniques. However, uh, I have two books here. When I started the Blue series, I wanted some background information. So I have a Black Legacies and Black Feminism by Angela Davis, which focused on Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith and Billie Holiday. Then um, there wasn't enough information about other blues artists. So I found this book. It's Black Pearls, Blues Queens of the 1920s. And this has given me all the background information that I need to complete the piece of sculpture that you saw currently. So, and I'm loving it because every page is, oh my God, here's somebody else. Never heard of them. Well, what did they do? Well, look what they did. And it's just fascinating. So one day I'll go back to reading novels, but it's not right now. Over that's there. fine, that's, that's fantastic. Tina, what about you? Um, you know what? I guess I'm kind of like segueing around. I do most of my reading in snippets because I have like I, a lot of 
books that I had to have. So I used them to reference for, for my work. Um, and I kind of, like I said, I, I, the seer and the sayer and Victoria is her name, but I don't get the last name. Um, I'm on to this now in terms of how these rivers collide and about the fourth river that is of the indigenous source. Um, I I'm, I'm fascinated. I wish that my husband was here so that we could do this dig together because um, he always felt like there was something very spiritual about the land in Homewood and that there was this place called Silver Lake uh, that they turned into a drive drive in and you know we kind of fantasized about telling a story about uh, the cosmic effort that was going on with with these people and so I'm gonna I'm gonna finish reading that I've, and when I started kind of digging around for the um, story that you know I've tried to like I guess I didn't get the whole story out about the uh, Sonia Clark piece in the hair um, I started to reminisce about one of my neighbors who ended up, I didn't know, she was a historian and her name was Ancilla Rafford Beckley. And I was part of their family. And it's like, you know, it's like the smells and the, and the aromas of the house and to find out that they were from Jamaica and, you know, I, they were different smells from what I had. So I've gotten like a flurry of new memories that I want to explore. And uh, I want, uh, so Ancilla Beckley has written about, um, I think it's a Memphis, Tennessee garrison who is from Huntington, West Virginia. And she was an activist and she was a spitfire and uh, she wrote a book about it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the book. I'm gonna start to read about her and uh, I'm gonna concentrate a little bit more on my storytelling of my hometown versus just all of the diasporic uh, information that I've done over the last decade. So wow. I've got a lot of work to do. Oh, great. I mean, this is a good list. I'm just taking some notes here. So yes, this is wonderful. Well, um, we are wrapping up here and I just want to thank you both for just your, the light that you bring to the world and through your art making and, um, and just sharing of your time and sharing of your, your skills and, and, and talent and to just be with us and to have your work as part of 154 Art Fair. And um, does anybody wanna share any parting um, words before we sign off? Oh, I would, I absolutely, I would love to thank the gallery, the Buck Gallery for like scooping me up uh, and introducing my work to like a greater audience. I've been very, you know, they say everything's local. I've been very local um, in my pursuit of my work, uh, but, but to have it presented to a larger audience has been like such a blessing. And so I, I wanna thank the gallery and I wanna thank 154 for recognizing my work. And, um, you know, you, they love my children. And then also, Tina, you have um, you're on Instagram. Yes, you are, right? Well, I'm a I'm a pretender. So anybody that looks at Instagram knows that I don't know how to make it work. So my granddaughter does it for me long distance, and I so as as Dinga said, 
you're when you're a hand quilter, you're you're really working all the time with your hands. And to do the Instagram thing and learn all those new techniques, uh, I'm going to have to do better because when I was visiting with them this last couple of weeks, um, nobody wants to bother with grandma anymore. So I've got to get up. I've got to get with it. Wait, wait, Tina, you are on Instagram as Tina Brewer Designs, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's me. All right. Great. And then Dina. Yeah. I would like to thank the Friedman Gallery because that's how I am here today. They have been really, really great about helping me take my career to the next level and uh, helping me get into shows that I've never been able to get into before. And just being a great supportive and backup service or group for me or just a force. Um, I think that's it. All right. And you're on Instagram as Dingo, right? I'm on Instagram okay. with three different names. Um, I don't know all of them. I know Dingo, at Dingo McCannon, Dingo mm -hmm. Studio, because I had gotten hacked and I got hysterical and I shut down one account. Then I ended up opening up another one, etc. I am not a... a a technical person in the sense that I look at Instagram every once in a blue moon, but I'm not a daily person. I am not a poster. I always thought that if I wanted everybody to know everything about my life, I would go and tell them personally. And <laughs> yes, I just like to have you know some kind of shield between myself and the outer world like that. But yes. Uh, truth be told, I do check occasionally. If you put something on and you don't hear from me for a while, it's not because I don't like you. It's simply because I'm busy in the studio and I haven't gotten around to going to Instagram. Because the thing with all of the medias is you go and you look at one thing and next thing it's an hour later and you're having all of these conversations. You say, oh my God, I'm supposed to be doing this and I'm doing that. So okay. to prevent all of that, I just check in every once in a while. Understandable, but just for people to follow you on Instagram, you are at Dinga McCann and, and, and also Dinga Studio. Gotcha. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you both. And thank you, 154, for hosting and all the great work that you're putting out into the world. And um, so we'll just say goodbye for now. All right. Thank you. Well, thank you for having us. Right, great bye. to meet you, Tina. Bye. It's good bye. meeting you again, Dinga. See you soon. <laughs>